Well, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15 this morning, and I'm going to encourage you to get your Bible out. We don't have a scripture reading because I'm going to be looking at different sections all over the place in Acts chapter 15, and it's a fairly long chapter. I won't ever read the whole thing. Um, let me tell you why we're looking at it. We're in between sermon series right now. We've, we've finished looking at the themes and doctrines of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, we may come back to that probably next year. Um, we're also going to be starting a new summer series here shortly. But in between here, we're in what we're calling Membership May. Membership May. Each week we're looking at a different aspect of what it means to be a member of a church, of this church in particular. Last week, of course, all eyes were on global missions and how deeply important that is to us here at the Kirk. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the role of the pastor as we celebrate Chad's installation. But this week, it's Mother's Day. And occasionally on Mother's Day, I like to reflect on the church itself, owing to uh, the quote from the early church leader Cyprian, who said, No one can have God for his father who does not also have the church for his mother. See the link there? It's pretty good. Now, specifically what we're going to talk about this morning is this curious reality in our lives called denominationalism. What do we do with denominations? This church, the Kirk of the Hills, belongs to a denomination called the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. If you're a member of this church, you're a member of the PCA. The PCA is the largest theologically conservative Presbyterian denomination in the country. The PCA was formed in 1973 as a denomination committed to submitting to the authority of God's scriptures, branched out of the old mainline denomination, the PCUSA. And I want to bring this up in part this morning because something very exciting is going to be happening in the PCA this summer, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But here's the thing, and here's, I think, what I better recognize just right up front. In our day, many people, when this topic comes up, um, I think people have in their minds, you know, is this something you should be openly talking about? Like, is this something that you really want to uh, sound glad for? Or is denominationalism, especially in, you know, the 21st century, something that we ought to be a little ashamed of? Is it just a necessary evil. More and more, I think the impression people have of denominations is that maybe they're just relics of an old era, a more institutional era, or they're evidence of ugly splintering in the church, or they're a turnoff to people who are already skeptical about the church as it is. You know, in, in a nutshell, denomination Denominations and affiliation with them is something that should probably just kind of be whispered about in back rooms by people who still actually care. Or, or maybe it'd, it'd be better if we just abolished them, you know, if we abandoned them altogether. And I have to say, within some of those concerns, I think rests some important areas of caution, some, some legitimate elements of truth. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. I also think denominationalism gets too bad of a rap. Too bad of a rap. In fact, 
There are realities that make denominations a true good short of utopia. A true good short of utopia. There are are realities that make denominations what I, I might call a profound grace of governance as we try to be a unified church in the world, as we try to show a beautiful church to the world. And those realities are actually writ large on the pages of Scripture. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning I want to show you a bit about this from Acts chapter 15. We're going to talk about three things, okay? Three main points. The path to unity, the power of governance, and the problem with uniformity. So let's look at those together. And The first point here, and we'll start right at the beginning of Acts 15, is looking at the path to unity. Now, what happened in Acts chapter 15? What happened was different camps in the church got into a disagreement. That's something that used to happen a long time ago, I know. Look at verse 1 with me. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers this. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, This was a thing because almost all of the earliest Christians were Jews. Obviously, it kind of bled out of the Jewish tradition. and, And what that meant was the Jewish customs and ethnic markers for them as a as a cultural people got conflated with Christ's teachings. And you know, initially that seemed like the most natural and obvious way for it to work. But then more and more Gentiles started to become Christians and things got confusing. So do these Gentiles need to become Jews culturally in order to be saved or not? It's sort of like, you know, in our day and age thinking, huh, for a Mexican to become a Christian, does she need to start putting her hand over her heart whenever the Star Spangled Banner is played? It's like this blending of religious faith and, you know, ethnic, national culture. And it was even more confusing back then because the people of God had always only ever been one ethnic culture, Jewish. And they just didn't know what to do. And so, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. They were saying, no, no, no way. These Gentile converts don't need to take on every little jot and tittle of Jewish culture. But not everybody was sold. And so Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders there about this question. In other words, the little local church where they were kicked it up the ladder. They appealed to a higher court, if you will. They appealed to the leaders at Jerusalem, which was like the headquarters for the church at the time. So verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, you know how welcoming, you know, greetings, reunions are. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And and they sat around and told stories. They declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order... And, and order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, what do you know? Even back then, there were different camps in the church. 
There was, a, there was a party spirit, party divisions. And I want you to notice this. One of these parties was the Pharisees. And we, we have a certain association with the Pharisees from reading the New Testament. You know, these, these were people who uh, were usually painted in a bad light, were antagonistic toward Jesus in the New Testament. But these particular Pharisees at this particular time had converted. They were genuine believers in Jesus. They had laid down all of their legalism and said, we trust in Jesus to be our salvation, our justification. And yet, they were those guys. Yes, even from the beginning, some genuine believers were the humorless, litigious types who were always eager to get down to business and here they're saying, look, okay, enough storytelling. We got a theological bone to pick. Genuine believers. But they didn't want to talk about stories. They wanted to argue about theology. Now, what we get for the rest of the chapter here is two different themes that, that run in parallel to one another. On the one hand, we get the substance of the debate, the, all the details in this question about how Gentile converts should and or should not have to assimilate into Jewish culture, the substance of the debate. But we also, right alongside that, get the structure of the debate. So not, not talking about why they were debating, but talking about how they were debating. And that's what I want to look at this morning. There's easily 2 to 15 sermons that could be preached out of this chapter. I'm only going to try to preach one of them this morning. We're going to especially look at the structure of the debate, how they were debating. And here's the deal. Structure and substance, both parts make up the Bible. Both parts are critical for us to understand God's intent for the church. So let's look at the structure here. How does it go? How does the debate unfold? Verse 6. The apostles and the elders considered the matter. Okay, so each person thought it over, took it seriously, weighed it in their own hearts and minds. Verse 7, they debated. Different people stood up. They gave speeches for and against. Moving down to verse 12, after one of those speeches, they listened. You know, so one guy was speaking at a time, but the others were taking him seriously. The Holy Spirit's in him too. How does he see it? Verse 15, they referred back to the prophetic writings. In other words, they completely understood, they consulted the scripture as really the overarching authority in the room. We're all trying to make sense of it. Scripture is the only one who truly knows. Down to verse 19, eventually, one of them, James, proposed a judgment. In other words, Somebody brought a motion for a vote. And by verse 22, isn't it amazing? 16 verses, boom, they're good to go. But at verse 22, it seemed good to everyone to act in a certain way. I mean, the impression we get here is that it seems to have ended up in a unanimous place. You know, you had Paul and Barnabas, you had the Pharisees. By the end of their conversation, they all were in agreement. So that's, that's the fastest reading of Acts 15 you'll ever get. What was really happening here? What, what were they doing? I'll tell you what they were doing. Denominational work. 
They were connecting. They were deliberating. They were submitting to a collective judgment for the good of the church. And it's the same thing we're still doing 2,000 years later. Now I'll tell you, a lot of tree rings have developed over the last 2,000 years, right? I mean, a lot of issues have been debated. A lot of branches have been added to the tree. And we have to come to peace with that in a sense. And one of the ways we do that, as you know, as Christians at our best, we make playful jokes about the quirks that each, of each denomination. We Presbyterians, we are certainly a self-aware people. Sometimes we are an insecure people about our own tribe. Some of you may have seen the um, article in the Babylon Bee a few months back. Babylon Bee, uh, you may know, is a satirical kind of news website. One of the articles went like this. Members of First Elect Reverend Presbyterian Church were holding an outdoor worship service Sunday when a gang of social justice warriors approached who were roaming the streets in search of historical monuments to topple. And the Presbyterians were so still as they worshipped, they thought they'd found some. <laughs> Activist Caden Gresham told reporters, they look like a group of statues, the way they were frozen in place. And it didn't help that they must not spend much time in the sun because they were white as marble. <laughs> Honest mistake. I'm glad to hear you laughing. I wasn't sure if you would. But it's okay to laugh because it's true. You know, compared to some other traditions, we don't hoot and holler and move around a lot when we worship. And that's fine. Because theological distinctives aside, denominations also tend to have personalities. And in a world filled with God's like creative, rich, beautiful diversity... Having a personality is not automatically a weakness. And by the same token, humor is our friend here because it can be a gentle way of reminding us to look in the mirror and, and, and to, to give credence to the fact that certain aspects of our collective personality might be a weakness. And we need to recognize that and we need to grow and be open to what we might be able to learn from other denominations and other collective personality groups. But here's my point. When I look around at the different forms and structures and systems that most denominations in America are using today to debate things and to come to conclusions, I recognize a healthy governance that springs directly from Acts chapter 15. So here's, here's kind of the takeaway on the first point. If, if talking about denominations feels kind of icky to you, I want to challenge you to consider having a thankful heart for organized churches, for churches with clear and helpful leadership structures and clear and helpful membership structures and clear and helpful decision-making structures. And I know, I know. We get restless and impatient. I do. You know, I'm, I'm first offender. We get impatient with committee meetings and voting 
and with trying to do things decently in good order all the time and with bureaucracy and administration. And we get frustrated that there's so much disagreement. You know, why don't people just make smart choices and get along? Why don't people see the answer as obviously as I see it? But in reality, unity doesn't come that easily. Unity always comes slowly. Unity is won by a patient and respectful process. And it's worth it in the end. It's worth it. The path to unity is, I'm going to say it, meetings. The path to unity is meetings filled with thoughtful listening and thoughtful speaking and thoughtful deciding. In Acts 15, what started as a hotly divided group found wholeness around a decision in the end. See, unity isn't just the result. Unity is also the process of how we come to conclusions about the most important things. Now, what do denominations do with those conclusions? That's the second point I want to talk about. We're going to look at the power of a government. When we're talking about denominations, in part, we're looking at, at governance, at po politics, group decision-making. And look at verse 22. They chose men from among them after they had come to their conclusion, and they sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose men, namely, they sent Judas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas, leading men among the brothers. And they sent them, verse 23, oh, with a letter. Now, when we talk about churches having governments, does that seem important to you? I mean, I ask because, you know, we have, we have civil governments. We have local, state, federal government, and they have the ability to levy taxes. They have the ability to make laws and to enforce those laws with things called police officers who carry weapons, and they have the ability to, to sentence you through courts to jail time. I mean, this is serious stuff. This is why you watch a lot of CNN and Fox and whatever else. You know, God has appointed the state to carry what we call the power of the sword. But the church sends letters. Just sends letters. Hey, hey, it's, it's us. You know, we had a nice orderly debate and we came to our conclusion. Here's what we decided. We, we sure hope you want to listen to us. Wow, that's a lot of bite. The church's power is only declarative. To declare the gospel message to people through the earnest preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And and the only recourse that the church has, the only form of discipline, is in parallel with that commission. To use words to warn people. To speak prophetically to people. To use words to withhold those means of grace, if need be, from people who are claiming faith, but who are aggressively resisting the leadership of Jesus. And I think because of this dynamic, when people hear about the courts of the church, I think there's a tendency to, 
maybe even subconsciously just assume that's, that's not real government. You know what I mean? When I, what I hear about on C-SPAN is real government. Church government is just kind of pretend. Almost like boys' state. You know what boys' state is? When high school juniors go off for a week to like politics camp in the summer and, and learn about how, how political dynamics work by having mock elections and so on. And, and they use all the lingo and the methods of government, but they don't actually have any real power. It's just, it's just a game. Now think about the implications when that becomes how we regard the authority of the church, the governance of the church. For, for someone who thinks the idea of church government is something akin to boy state, it will follow that they're going to give 98% of their attention to the goings-on of the civil government and 2% of their attention to the business of church governments. You see what I mean? But once again this morning, what I want to do is I want to I want to invite you to take the church a little more seriously. Its clout may seem impotent compared to the power of the sword, may seem unnewsworthy to plenty of people. Its recourse may seem really innocuous or just bland. But the church's commission is a serious one. And the consequences of how church courts manage their governing authority runs deep, strikes deep into the ore of society. And beyond that, the consequences of the church's governance last long into eternity. Now we're going to give you a chance this morning to take the church courts seriously. Some of you know that the PCA has a national gathering of its pastors and elders to do the work of the church every year. We call it the General Assembly, the GA. It's hosted every year in a major city. This year, it's coming to St. Louis. It's supposed to last year. We had a pandemic. It's coming this year instead. It's a big deal. Thousands of people are coming. It'll be hosted down at the America Center downtown. And in a little bit, Chad's going to come up and give you some actual you know, rubber on the road ways, opportunities that you can get involved in helping out with RGA, and as you do, how you can come and see firsthand with your own eyes the operation of the national court of our denomination. And I think you'd be, I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be encouraged to see some of it go on. So that's coming up, but before I finish, one last point. I, there's one other aspect to denominations that I think we better talk about. Division. The splitting. The arguing. Sometimes it almost feels like hating. And what we got to get at is the question of how do we manage unity while also recognizing the problem with uniformity. Look down here in verse 36 with me. This is after uh, the, the Jerusalem council had made its decision. It had sent out Paul and Barnabas and on their journey. They'd already left. And it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Hey, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we've already proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas 
wanted to take with them, John, called Mark. But Paul thought, "Mm, best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and he departed in the other direction. Now what's going on? What this shows us is that well-meaning, genuine, gospel-believing people can have such sharp disagreements that sometimes they need to part ways. That's a reality. Now, now this was an interpersonal disagreement. You know, John Mark had flaked out on Barnabas and Paul on an earlier trip. Uh, family system dynamic here. John Mark also happened to be Barnabas' nephew. And Barnabas is saying, hey, you know, Paul, look, we got to give him another shot in the spirit of grace, right? Because we're all about grace. And Paul's saying, yes, but look, the work we're doing here is life-threatening. And I'm not denying him the grace of Christ. I'm just denying him the opportunity to hold my life in his hands when things get sticky. I don't want to be with him again in a dangerous situation. I don't trust his judgment. And it got heated. And you're thinking, well, who's right and who's wrong? We don't know. It got heated. Like fuming mad. And they broke up the band and they stormed off in separate directions. Now, I think, think, side note, at least it's worth saying, this is kind of embarrassing. These two great historic founding leaders of the faith These spiritual heroes couldn't figure out a way to attain their own ideals of reconciliation. And it's interesting to me that this is in the Bible because Paul is one of the authors of parts of the Bible and yet his own character is kind of like, you know, he's caught red-handed here in this attitude. It's evidence that the Bible is fully aware of realities that complicate our ideals. It's also evidence that the Bible is out to tell the truth about events, not just to paint a rosy picture, an idealized picture of what happened then, of what's going to happen to us now. Bottom line, good people get in fights. Always have, always will. And guess what? The same thing happens with entire groups of people. Entire groups of people. You might call those groups denominations. Sometimes the entire council gets together. And after dissension and debate, like they had here at the beginning of the chapter, instead of getting to the point where they're all in agreement, the only thing they're agreeing on is the fact that they, they really do adamantly disagree and they're not going to change. Now what does grace for brokenness look like then? Grace for brokenness is one of our five core values here. We're serious about it. How do you show grace to one another in the middle of a tensiony moment? Well, it's complex. It's nuanced. Because you see, uniformity would require that they stay together. And the only way that's going to work is if one party is made to submit against their conscience to the other side. Now, from the outside, that may look like a utopian form of unity, right? 
at least they're still under the same roof. We don't know what's going on under that roof, but from the outside, it looks like, you know, they're one. But here's the thing. The pressure of uniformity can often be the most dangerous thing to an underlying unity. Sometimes, Scripture shows us, two sides need to go their separate ways in order to be able to maintain a unity around the primary things. And this reality, hear me, this reality does not threaten the integrity of the gospel. There are secondary issues that we need to sometimes part ways around and it doesn't threaten the integrity of the gospel. When we, when we part ways over primary issues, that's because the integrity of the gospel has been compromised somewhere. But in order to protect our unity around the core things of Jesus, sometimes the best thing to do is to give each other some space. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about the difference between primary and secondary matters, a lot more that can be said about when it is and is not appropriate to part ways over a disagreement. Like I said, I could preach a lot of sermons out of this passage, but time is short, so I just want to finish with a couple practical applications. Okay? Three things to kind of send you on the road with. First of all, in a fractured world, if you want to be part of a church, you're going to have to pick a denomination. And some, I know, try to have, have come to that impasse, tried to work around it by saying, well, we're going to call ourselves non-denominational. And I get it. I get the allure of that. But look, the word denomination just means name, designation, something that distinguishes you from another, like, like a piece of money or a playing card. You know, so to say I'm non-denominational is like a $5 bill saying I'm a non-$10 bill. We're all committed to something. We're, we all gather around some commonality. So I would just say in a fractured world, if you want to be part of a church, you're going to have to pick a denomination. So pay close attention to which denomination you pick and why. Each one is a theological environment of some sort that will influence your beliefs and will exercise some type of governance over you when you get involved. So just choose wisely. Second, second takeaway, we have to really commit ourselves to making sure we are not feeding a sense of competition between denominations or, or, or just carrying some kind of arrogance about our own denomination. Every denomination that shares primary things about Jesus is on our team, is on our team. We're brothers and sisters in Christ who have done the hard work of thinking through important issues and showing the dignity of being honest about what we really do see differently. That's a good and beautiful thing. For us in the PCA, all those Bible-loving, Christ-centric Baptists and Lutherans and Anglicans and Methodists, they're not the opposition. They're family. And there is a way to say, well, I have landed here, you know, for me. I've landed in the PCA, and I really do think it's the best thing around. To be able to say that 
without in any way being mean-spirited or competitive. So that's the second takeaway. And here's the last one I would just say to you. Don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged about all of this denominationalism in our world. Look, I, I wish we could just have one big church service, St. Louis-wide church service, every Sunday. And we would all be aligned on every jot and tittle of our theology. And we would use our full energy to care for one another, the, the tens, hundreds of thousands of Christians in St. Louis, knowing and caring for one another and collectively, like, like coalescing to show the love of Christ to the rest of St. Louis. But actually, in reality world, I think our collegial commitment to unity without uniformity can be understood as one of the greatest pictures of the grace of the gospel that we show our city. We spread out many denominations with many personalities to engage many different kinds of people. Did you notice what happened with Paul and Barnabas? Despite the ugliness of their argument, twice as many cities were reached when they split up. Now here's the thing. Heaven... Heaven will come. Heaven is coming. This ain't it. This ain't it. We're not there yet. And this doesn't need to be it. Praise the Lord for what we do have now under the banner of his mercy. And praise the Lord for where we are all going eventually together. I'm going to pray and then Chad's going to come up and lead us in the thing that unifies all Christians. The Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for giving us this period of time, this, this stage in the life of the world where we're not fully to glory yet. And we have to live with the implications of that, but we sure are on our way. And as you guide your church, your bride, the one you died for, the thing that you care about more than any of the rest of us, in fact, all the rest of us combined, Lord, help us to do it in a way that honors you, that honors the realities of our moment, that honors people that we disagree with, and that honors the foot of the cross, the one thing that we definitely all have in common. So Lord, as we come to the supper now, humble us as people who are not so busy trying to be right that we can't admit our need as sinners because we are so often wrong. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.